Well, I want to start with a question that uh, a dear friend of mine once asked me, a pastor, one of the most kind-hearted pastors I've ever met. He's kind of Wendy and I's uh, pastor, if you will. And he asked me this question, what makes your heart dance? What makes your heart dance? I'd never been asked the question in so many words before, and it kind of caught me off guard. And what's worse is he asked it as he was calling me up from the crowd to come give a testimony on the spot, ad hoc. And so I didn't have much time to really think uh, through it. Uh, but he said, what makes your heart dance? And it really shouldn't have caught me off guard the more I think about it, because as a believer, our source of joy should be ever-present, you know, inherent, something that bubbles over instinctively uh, from our hearts. It shouldn't be something we have to think about and come up with, right? If someone asks you to give a testimony, hey, what brings you joy? You know, what fills your heart with joy? It ought to just flow naturally. Somberness, uh, gloominess, grimness, those aren't Christian virtues. There should be no sad saints, as someone has said. If God is really the center of our lives and of our being, then joy will be inevitable. In fact, if we have no joy, then we're really missing the heart of the good news of salvation and, and what it means to be saved as a believer. You know, happiness is an emotion, but joy is a steadfast attitude. There's a difference between the world's perspective of happiness and the biblical perspective of joy. And that's why Paul, for example, could write from a prison house bound with chains uh, in uh, Rome, which is where we're going to find him today as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. But he could write these words even in the midst of being a prisoner. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. I mean, when you think about the fact that we're told to rejoice in the Lord always, and then you look around at the average Christian today, you begin to wonder what in the world's happened in the 2,000 years since the church began on the day of Pentecost. As we come to this next section in our text in the book of Acts, I'm struck with what it must have been like for Paul to finally arrive in Rome. I mean, can you imagine how it must have felt when he received such a warm reception as we're going to see in a moment, and, and what joy must have filled his heart? It's amazing to me that given all that he had endured during that six and seven month journey to Rome, with the, you know, all the problems at sea, three times he, he nearly died, uh, the, the snake bite on Malta, yet he still had such a positive outlook when he met up with the believers in Rome. And I think I know why. I mean, Paul's own letters in Scripture give us a hint. There's something about the fellowship of other believers. There's something about being part of the family of God that brings a smile to our faces, even in the midst of really tough circumstances. We've been there. You know, if you have the joy of the Lord, no matter what's happening around you, there's that deep inner peace, and you can, you can smile. Doesn't mean there aren't sad times, doesn't mean there aren't difficult times, but there's something about that steadfastness of joy that comes through the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and through being a child of God, being part of the family of God. And when people aren't believers, you can tell because they don't have that countenance. They don't have that, that type of smile. Mark Twain once said, grief can take care of itself, 
But to get the full value of joy, we must have someone to share it with. Paul had previously written to the believers in Rome, even before he had met them, about three years earlier, he said this, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice he says, in believing. That's this common bond. You know, believing the gospel fills us with joy because it is first and foremost good news. We were lost on the road to hell, sold under sin, facing the eternal penalty of sin, and yet because of the grace of God, Jesus died and rose again for our sins, and we receive from him the free gift of eternal life by faith, and that's good news. That is very good news. And you see throughout Scripture this connection of the gospel, God's remedy for man's predicament, and joy. It's, it's a running uh, theme. Uh, it's particularly in Luke's writings and Luke's gospel and the book of Acts, which is what we're studying right now. But we could go back to the announcement to the shepherds uh, of the birth of Christ out in the fields. So do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of what? Great joy which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That, that word joy there is the Greek word kara. Uh, kara, it's used 60 times in the New Testament. It, it carries the idea of joy, delight, gladness, great happiness. And there is a worldly joy, to be sure, this pleasure and happiness that comes just from temporal things. But there is altogether something different when it comes to the spiritual view of life, and that is deep joy in the Lord, kara. It's, it's where we get the English name kara. Uh, sometimes that, that first letter of the, the Greek word there, it's a key. Uh, uh, it's sometimes transliterated with a K. So if you ever have met anyone named kara, hopefully they're a very joyful, happy person. If not, they're not keeping up. Uh, with their namesake there. But Paul longed to see these believers in Rome. In fact, he asked uh, you know, for their prayers. He said, pray for me that I may come to you with joy by the will of God. You know, God that God's will would be met, that I'd be able to come to you, and when I do, I will have joy and, and be refreshed together with you. He understood the value of the fellowship of other believers. Earlier in this same letter to the Romans, he had mentioned that the Christian life is all about joy. He says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now the context here, at the end of Romans, he's talking about disputes and conflicts over what foods were appropriate to eat and what, what ones weren't, and this legalistic tendencies of some of the new believers there in the early decades of the church. And he says the kingdom of God is not about all that stuff. And in this particular context, it's one of the few cases where the kingdom of God is broader than just the future earthly kingdom, kind of like when he wrote uh, to the Colossians and he said that because of your faith, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the son of our love. Sometimes kingdom can refer to the general uh, authority of God and the, and the family of God at large. Most of the time, however, in the context, it refers to the future earthly millennial reign of Christ when Christ is going to come back and take the throne as promised him in the Old Testament. But here, he's talking about the realm in which we live as Christians, as part of the family of God. 
and the primary focus in the lives of mature Christians should not be on external preferences and practices and things like that, the squabbles that we tend to have, but the great spiritual qualities that the Holy Spirit brings and, and seeks to produce in us if we yield to the Holy Spirit. And he says these qualities include righteousness. Well, righteousness just means right conduct, behaving right. That's something that the Holy Spirit, if we yield to him, will lead us to do. You know, through the Word of God and the yieldingness of the Holy Spirit, we begin to produce right behavior. You can't muster it up on yourself. You, you, in yourself, you can't just work harder and try harder and be better. That's, you know, unbelievers can do that. But what separates believers from unbelievers is the fact that we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit who convicts us and leads us and guides us if we will but yield to Him. Now, we can quench the Spirit. That's what happens when we sin. When we sin and disobey the Lord, it's because we're turning a deaf ear to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the Word of God and saying, I don't want to do that. I want to go the way of the flesh. I want to, I want to do this my way. And so we can quench the Spirit. We can not yield to the Spirit. We can resist the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit, those types of things. Sadly, uh, outward righteousness is not guaranteed in the life of a believer. I wish it were. I wish the moment we got saved, it was just kind of poof. Instant sanctification, instant perfection, and we all never sinned again. Wouldn't that be great? But, you know, we have this flesh lusting against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. The two are contrary to one another, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. But not only does the Holy Spirit produce right behavior, it produces peace. And peace and joy are kind of cousins, right? Because it's only because of the deep inner peace that we have, even though everything around us may be falling apart, as Paul said in Philippians 4, 7, we can have the peace of God which passes understanding. And, and then, of course, we can have joy. And uh, Paul wanted these Roman believers, whom he's going to meet for the first time in our text today, to have the right perspective. And, and he wants us, by extension, in, in, in this Word of God that's inspired by the Holy Spirit, to have that same perspective. You know, joy is one of the nine qualities that constitute the fruit of the Spirit that Paul describes in the very first letter that he wrote. Paul had been a believer for about 14 years, and he had just come back with Barnabas from his first missionary journey, and the Holy Spirit inspired him to write the book of Galatians. And, uh, you know, he talks here about the relationship between the fruit of the Spirit and the law. And Paul, of all people, knew a thing or two about the law. I mean, he was, before he got saved, he was zealous for the law. He was a legalist to the nth degree, and he was out there persecuting Christians based on every jot and tittle of the law. And notice what he says. He explains that there are laws in society against outward actions of the flesh because they're destructive, but there are no laws against the fruit of the Spirit because it's not destructive. It's edifying. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. The works of the flesh respect no laws. You can pass as many laws as you want, and it won't keep people from breaking them. You know, it may control us a little bit. It may make you think twice, but, you know, as I've said many times, I've never seen a stop sign uproot itself from the corner of the road and jump out in front of your car and stop you from rolling through it, right? Laws can't control you. They can just uh, simply establish the standard. And uh, the, Paul goes on in Galatians, or earlier in Galatians, actually in chapter 3, he talks about the purpose of the law. But, you know, the works of the flesh respect no laws, but the fruit of the Spirit needs no laws. That's what he's saying here. 
Laws exist to restrain, but in the fruit of the Spirit, there's nothing to restrain because we're just letting the Spirit overflow naturally. And so as we think about joy and how it flows from the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, let me ask you, what makes your heart dance? What fills you with joy? Uh, I'm going to suggest three things in just a moment, but as we turn to Acts chapter 28, uh, Paul and his companions had spent the winter, as we talked about last week, on the island of Malta. But ships began to sail again toward the middle of February, and the centurion was able to secure passage on another Alexandrian ship, probably another grain ship like the previous one that had broken up in the storm outside of Malta. And, uh, and these ships would frequently winter on these Maltese ports, and so the centurion went to one of these grain ships. Remember, there were no passenger ships that were purely passenger ships. So people, and there were 276 of them in this case that needed a new ship, uh, would, would come on board some of these cargo ships. Paul and his uh, you know, other folks on this journey had about 120 miles, I'm sorry, 210 miles left to get to Rome. If we go back to our map that we've been kind of looking at, you can see it started some seven months ago or so from Caesarea, uh, there, just northwest of Jerusalem on the coast. And then they had all kinds of experiences that we've been tracking with them. Uh, they ended up shipwrecked on Malta over here, as we talked about last week. And now they've got 210 miles to go to complete their journey uh, all the way uh, to Rome. So let's pick it up in verse uh, 11. After three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead, you know, on the, on the, front of the uh, hall there, was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island, Malta. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. Luke's uh, reference here, again, writing as the Holy Spirit led him to write, uh, to the figurehead of the ship uh, is a bit unusual. It's the only place in the book of Acts where a ship's name is recorded, and this ship took its name from the figurehead, twin brothers. The twin brothers in Greek uh, mythology were, were Castor and Pollux. They were the two Greek gods that were thought to provide safety for sailors. They were the sons of Zeus and Leda in Greek mythology. Uh, Leda was the queen of Sparta. Anyway, Zeus transformed uh, these two twins, Castor and Pollux, into gods. And if, if you know your constellations, Gemini represents these twins, Castor and Pollux. In fact, sailors, uh, in, in, you know, following Greek mythology, if you're in the midst of a storm and you can still see the constellation Gemini, it's thought to give you good luck. It's going to be okay. It's not that bad. We can see these gods that are going to help us. Well, one of my mentors uh, from Dallas Seminary years ago said, quote, perhaps Luke mentioned these twin brothers in Greek mythology to contrast God's real protection with the protection of the pagans that they superstitiously thought could help them. Luke certainly had emphasized God's divine protection over the last couple of chapters in Acts, each step of the way. God had promised that everybody would make it safely to Rome. Uh, I can't prove this, but can't you just hear Paul whispering to Luke, as they get ready to board this new ship, we have a better protector than these twin brothers. God is in control. So they landed at Syracuse, was the first stop where they stayed three days. Syracuse was on the east coast of this large island of Sicily, and a very important 
a port on the island. And in this account, the first thing we notice that should fill all Christians with joy is a kindred spirit. There's something about being around fellow believers that just makes you smile. Smile in ways that you can't really smile when you're around unbelievers, right? When you're around unbelievers, they don't, they don't have that connection. They don't know what is making you have that joy. This kindred spirit, the common bond of the Holy Spirit who permanently indwells all believers the moment we have faith, with Ephesians chapter 1. And that's the way it should be, I and mean, that's what we're going to see here in our text, this idea of fellow believers making you smile. But sadly, that's not so much the case these days. Uh, I saw this post on Reddit from May 4th, just 10 days ago, and the person who wrote this post, she titled it, Christians Not Enthusiastic to Encounter Fellow Believers? Question mark. And then she writes, I started going back to church in 2013. I can't comment on the time period before that, just to say that I was born and raised in Southern California. I've noticed that when I meet a fellow believer and they learn that I'm a Christian, they typically don't care at all that there is another Christian they're talking to. Uh, out in the public, back when I was in college, in the workplace and group settings, doesn't matter. Someone gets in a conversation with me, they mention they're a Christian, I mention that I am too, and they don't often, often they don't really even bat an eye or say anything. A recent example, I was buying a camera from a guy in person, and it turns out he's a youth pastor and was working at his church right before coming to meet up with me. And I said, oh, cool, I'm a Christian too. In fact, my mom goes to that church right near yours. And he responded with something like, yeah, okay, so here's the camera. And then he proceeded to stick around for a good while talking about the camera and photography. Christianity never came up again. So it's not that these people I encounter don't want to get into a conversation. It's just that they don't seem to want to talk about Christ or acknowledge how cool it is or how it's God's providence that we encountered a fellow believer in an unbelieving world. And then she writes, does anyone else encounter this? What are your thoughts on this? Well, if you know much about Reddit, there were plenty of thoughts about that. But a couple of them were kind of interesting. One person commented, commented it's, it's just where we are on the prophetic timeline. A lot of churches are apostate, to which I would say a hearty amen. And this responder said, personally, if I run into another Christian in the wild, I love that phrase, in the wild. That's a great description for the world in which we live. But she says, when I run into another Christian in the wild, it's at least a five-minute conversation with hugs and a prayer before we part ways. I mean, how could you not want that? I don't encounter many Christians in the wild, but it makes me sad for the condition of the church. God bless you and all who read Maranatha. Another person commented, reading this made me cry. I haven't encountered a Christian in the wild, picking up on the previous poster's term. I haven't encountered a Christian in the wild in quite a long time let alone one who might want to talk and hug and pray. A kindred spirit. A kindred spirit. That should bring us joy. That should make our heart dance. Let's pick up the text in verse 13. From there, Syracuse, we circled round and reached Regium. The site of Regium, which is modern Regio di Calabria, was near the tip of the toe of Italy's boot, opposite Sicily, and about 75 miles north of Syracuse. It too was an important harbor. So if you look at the map, 
I've kind of pinpointed Regium there. You can kind of see the famous shape of Italy there, the boot. And then right there on the tip of the toe of that boot is Regium. And that was their next stop. After one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Puteoli. Puteoli is modern Pozzuoli, and it stood at about 200 miles farther north from Regium on what we might consider the Shin area of the boot. So there's uh, uh, Puteoli, uh, right there kind of on the Shin. Puteoli was one of the most protected parts of the Bay of Naples. It's a very large port. It was the final destination of many Egyptian wheat ships at that time and grain ships. But it was at Puteoli that Paul first met some of the Roman brethren. The next day we came to Puteoli where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. What comforting words. There we found brethren. <laughs> You know, it's not strange that a church existed there. Uh, I said Roman brethren. We don't know for sure whether these were Roman Christians or just citizens of Puteoli, but they were believers to be sure. And uh, there was a Jewish colony there. Maybe some Roman Christians had come down from the north and evangelized them, but somehow a church propped up and these people came to know the Lord. And we were invited to stay with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. The local Christians were very generous and hospitable toward Paul. They invited him to stay seven days to kind of get refreshed. You know, I don't know about you, but I've got relatives whom I would not want to stay with for seven days. And these were people they never met before, but because they're believers, they had this kindred spirit, and it brought joy to their hearts. Paul viewed other believers as a great source of hope and joy and rejoicing. On his second missionary journey uh, with Silas, he wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians, and he said, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Can you say that about other believers? You know, the church is so fragmented today, so many you know, schisms and schisms and fights, you know. I've seen in every church I've been in, people get upset about the littlest things, you know. And it saddens me because we ought to have joy in being uh, together. You know, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just amazing what happens. Uh, and then when he gets to Rome and he writes those famous prison epistles, uh, we talked about to Philippians 4, 7 earlier, but in Philippians 1 he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. See, a kindred spirit. He, later on in that same letter to the Philippians, he says, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. And the reason a kindred spirit is such a key component of joy is because joy ultimately, real joy, can only be found through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we all have Christ if you've placed your faith in him. Notice what the Apostle John says. Now, John wrote this 60 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, near the end of his life. And he says, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Remember, John was an eyewitness with the Lord. He walked and talked with the Lord, one of the disciples of the Lord. 
but by this time, many people have gotten saved. We've been six decades of church growth, and a lot of people were believers in the church had never seen Jesus. They had only heard about him. He says, we've seen and, and heard, and we declare this to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And notice the key here. Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. John's joy was full because of his fellowship with the Lord. Any other believer whose fellowship with, with, was with the Lord could have joy as well. There's a kindred spirit that should make our heart dance. The second thing that I think we see played out in this historical narrative is a warm welcome should really fill us with joy. Everyone likes to be welcomed. Uh, you know, we travel a ton. We're leaving right after the service today. I'm meeting Wendy en route. To, my, kid, my daughters are going to bring her. We're going to hit the road. we got a 10-hour drive to Oklahoma City where we're going to do some work with Prophecy Watchers tomorrow, uh, Gary Stearman and Mondo. And, uh, but we travel a ton. And if you travel a lot, I know some of you do, uh, you know how a warm welcome can make all the difference in the world. When I walk into a hotel room late at night, and there's nobody else around, and the person that's on night duty is sitting behind the counter, you know, playing on their phone, barely even lift up their head to acknowledge me, you know, what do you need? And I'm like, well, I'd just like to give you a lot of money for your company so that I can have a bed tonight. How's that sound, you know? And, uh, and they're just rude. And, but there's a huge difference when you walk in and they say, hello, Dr. Hickson, we were expecting you, and thank you for being a lifetime titanium member of Marriott. You know, it always bugs me when I've spent thousands of dollars over the last 20 years and they don't even acknowledge your status. It's like, what's the point, right? Uh, we're so glad you're here. How can I help you? Changes my perspective. I could have had the grumpiest day which usually if you're traveling, you do, you know, after those nice little free massages that the TSA gives you. It's kind of nice to have a warm welcome, right? And uh, invasive massages, I might add. Anyway, it, it, makes, it changes my attitude completely. It's like, oh, and I'm, I smile and I think, oh, it's a warm. Everybody likes to be welcomed. And it should make our heart dance. Notice what we see here in verse 15. From there, when the brethren heard about us, this is the ones in Rome, they came to meet us as far as the AP Forum and three inns. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. You know, news of Paul's arrival preceded him to Rome, which was still about 125 miles from uh, Puteoli. So here he's, he's left Puteoli. He comes to this uh, sort of rest stop, the three, uh, the three inns, the three taverns, I think it's called on this map, the New King James calls it three inns, and, and you know, an entourage of believers from Rome traveled down the Apian Way, one of the most well-traveled, oldest roads in Italy. They traveled 33 miles south from Rome to these three inns, this rest stop, and some of them waited there while the more excited ones proceeded another 10 miles further south to the Forum of Apius, which is a market, a place that people would come to shop. I think they had a Bass Pro shop there or something, but people would come from Rome, you know, out there to the suburbs to shop at this place. And it's there that Paul meets his first Roman Christians. He had sent them his epistle to the Romans. We've read some of those passages three years earlier from Corinth during his third missionary journey. But this group of greeters 
was a great encouragement to Paul, who had looked forward for so long to ministering in Rome. He describes that in Romans chapter 15. And Paul took courage from this welcoming committee, and he thanked God for it. He thanked God and took courage. So another example of a warm welcome that could really make your heart dance is Paul's relationship with Philemon. In one of the shortest books of the New Testament, just 25 verses, a single chapter, uh, Philemon, just to give you some background, was a, a comparatively wealthy Colossian who owned slaves, now as most of the rich of his day did. In fact, as many as a third of the inhabitants of most of the large urban centers, Greece, Italy, uh, you know, were, were slaves at that time. Um, and in the Roman Empire, just to, so people don't email me, uh, slaves were more like household servants in Victorian Britain than they were in sort of antebellum America. Uh, so Philemon had come to faith in Christ as a result of Paul's influence, probably while Paul sent, spent that extended stay in Ephesus uh, that we read about a few months ago. Uh, and so Philemon was a believer. Onesimus was one of Philemon's slaves, servants. And he ran away from Onesimus, I mean, ran away from Philemon and eventually made his way to Rome where he could kind of blend in with the crowd. And by God's divine providence, somehow he came in contact with Paul. And next thing you know, Onesimus gets saved. He's a believer. And following his conversion, Onesimus became a real valuable helper to Paul. And Paul really wanted to keep Onesimus around, but he, he felt a sense of responsibility to return him to uh, Philemon. Onesimus needed to make things right with Philemon, whom he had wronged. So Paul writes this brief, you know, 25 verse in our English Bible's letter in order to pacify Philemon and to promote reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. And he wanted to commend Philemon for showing compassion characteristically to other believers. Look at what he says in verse 7. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. <laughs> you know anybody like that who just refreshes your heart? You know, people that, you know, you're just glad to be around them, you know. There are people, you know, even believers through the years in our ministry journey that, not too excited to be around. I keep a list, but anyway, no, just kidding. But, but then there are those people that you just, you can't wait to see them. I'm thinking of some right now that we've known for years, and I just, anytime I get within 100 miles of them on our journeys, we try to take a side trip just because it's refreshing. And that's what Paul says about Philemon. He was a great source of joy to other believers. Here's the question. Can believers say that about you? Are you a great source of joy to other believers? Do you give them a warm welcome? Later in this same letter, Paul pleads with Philemon to continue his characteristic bringing of joy to others, namely to Paul. He says, bring me joy. Let, my, let me have joy from the Lord because you receive, the context here is because you receive Onesimus graciously. Be gracious to him. He's a believer now. He didn't mean to take off. Just be gracious to him. Refresh my heart in the Lord. A kindred spirit, a warm welcome, these are things that should make our heart dance. And then lastly, a desire accomplished. Nothing like the feeling of finishing a task, accomplishing a goal, 
And boy, this was a big one for Paul. We pick it up in verse 16, the last verse in our text. When we came to Rome, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. We've talked about the captain of the guard in, in, in the Roman world. Each region had a different uh, captain uh, there. And so Paul was one of these soldiers, I mean, one of these prisoners that the soldiers were guarding. The centurion got them safely to Rome. He delivers them. But notice Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Uh, Paul had got, gained favor in the eyes of the centurion after the seven-month journey because Paul was gracious, Paul was wise, Paul was helpful, uh, he wasn't a complainer. So oh, all this time they developed a relationship. So of course the, they reciprocated and were gracious to Paul. But these verses, this verse right here, verse 16, brings to you know, a, a climax Luke's account of the spread of the gospel to the West. If you go back all the way back to chapter 1 in Acts, which has been two years or so since we started this journey, um, but all the messages, by the way, are posted if you have an inclination to go back and kind of pick up the ones that you missed. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we saw it had gone from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the uttermost part of the earth. And that's what Jesus said would happen once the church was founded 10 days after his ascension in Acts chapter 1. The journey from Caesarea to Rome that we've mapped out uh, covered about 2,200 miles or so. We don't know exactly because you don't know how far they deviated. We kind of know from the stops what their direction was, but they could have gone in circles for a while. We don't really know. But let's say 2,200 miles and about four months, uh, over four months. Paul was now able to bear witness in the capital city of Rome, just like he had so longed to do. He was a goal-oriented person. Paul frequently spoke in terms of a desire accomplished. Back in chapter 20, uh, as he was addressing the Ephesian elders, he said, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. So that I may finish my race with joy. Does that characterize your heart attitude? Sadly, so many uh, believers, and especially, and this really puzzles me, so many pastors and Bible teachers, they just go off the rails near the end of life, doctrinally, heretically. I don't understand it. Uh, I've told Wendy, if that ever happens to me, take me out to pasture and shoot me. I want to finish strong. I want to I finish my race with joy. I really do. Not perfect. Certainly have plenty of mistakes uh, in my ledger over the last 35 years, but I, I want to finish strong. He said, in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And Paul imitated Christ. You know, he once said, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, maybe 2 Corinthians, he said, imitate Christ as I imitate, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ was Paul's example. And uh, what did Christ do? Uh, the writer of Hebrews, who may well have been Paul, tells us, looking unto Jesus, who's Jesus? The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ, you know, suffered more than any of us could ever suffer, the most cruel torture and death known to man. And yet, he did so because of joy, that relationship that he had with the Father. And we have that same joy through Christ with the Father. 
In one of his prison epistles, uh, as when Paul gets to Rome, he begins to set out over the next two years to write four letters, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. We've looked at passages from each of them. He says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. It's interesting to me that Paul, during his Roman imprisonment, having just come off of this lengthy journey and all the sufferings that he faced, frequently encourages the people that he's writing to to persevere with joy. Philippians, same thing, being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of the faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So what makes your heart dance? A kindred spirit should bring a smile to your face, the, the common bond of the Holy Spirit that we have with other believers, a warm welcome when you see believers. We see that again and again. We have the privilege of meeting new believers all the time when we go to speak, at, uh, many times in their homes. And we may only cross paths for a day or a weekend, and yet the, the, the warm welcome is just so encouraging and a desire accomplished. So you can learn a thing or two from dogs not so much from cats but you can definitely learn a thing or two from dogs and a wise old dog saw a young puppy chasing its tail and he asked why are you chasing your tail well the arrogant know-it-all puppy replied well i've mastered philosophy i've solved the problems of the universe which no dog before me has rightly solved and i've learned that the best thing for dogs is happiness and that happiness is in my tail Therefore, I'm chasing it, and when I catch it, I shall have happiness. Well, the wise old dog responded, My son, I too have paid attention to the problems of the universe, and I've formed some opinions. I too have judged that happiness is a fine thing for a dog, and that happiness is in my tail. But I've noticed that when I chase after it, it keeps running away from me. But when I go about my business doing what I'm supposed to do, it always comes after me. I think the story of Paul's journey to Rome teaches us to stop chasing after temporal, worldly, materialistic pursuits of life that bring a season of pleasure and worldly happiness. Stop worrying about all of life's problems. Rest in the joy of the Lord, knowing the Lord uh, can make you happy. True joy. For the takeaway, I want to take you back about 440 years before Christ. It was a time when the Jewish people found themselves in a very unenviable circumstance. They had begun returning to Jerusalem in stages from exile in Babylon. But in 440 B.C., the city lay in ruins. The walls were crumbling down. The temple had been destroyed, and the holy city was just a faint shadow of its former self. In chapter 8 of the book of Nehemiah, the returning Jews had just finished building the wall under Nehemiah's leadership. Nehemiah was the governor of the Persian province of Judah. By this time, Persia had supplanted the Babylonian Empire. And Nehemiah, when he learned the conditions in Jerusalem, requested permission to go to Judah. He arrives in Jerusalem in 444 B.C., and within 52 days, he was able to motivate and get the people of Israel to rebuild the city walls. Fascinating story. 
The Jewish people in Nehemiah's day consisted of about 97,000 Israelites who returned from captivity in Babylon. That's a comparatively small remnant of Jews by this time. 50,000 had come back under Zerubbabel in 536 B.C. Another 5,000 came back under Ezra in 458 B.C. And then 42,000 came with Nehemiah in 444 B.C. And these Jews had really no consciousness of their national history and the national influence, no sense of purpose as a nation. They didn't have much messianic hope. Uh, you don't see any reference to the future Messiah that's going to come back and usher in the long-awaited kingdom in Ezra, Nehemiah, or Esther. Now, Zechariah the prophet, who was a contemporary of these folks, did talk about the future Messiah. But there was just a hopeless period. And exhausted from this 52-day project, the people heard Ezra the priest, there with Nehemiah on the platform, read from the law to mark the moment. I want you to get the picture. Their emotions were just boiling over. This is just a very emotional time as they looked at what God had been able to accomplish through them and the heartache and the fact that they're back in their home. And they just started weeping and crying. They were exhausted. And listen to what Nehemiah said. He said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow for what? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's the takeaway that I want you to remember this morning. Whatever you're facing, we have a true sense of joy that can make our heart dance no matter what the circumstances are around us because our life on this earth is just a speck on the timeline of eternity. We are just strangers and pilgrims passing through. Our home is in glory from which we wait the Savior who's going to come rescue us someday. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this reminder from Paul of just the true heart and attitude of a believer. I pray that you would fill our hearts with that true joy that comes only from knowing you. And Father, if there's one here today that doesn't know you, oh, how we pray that your Holy Spirit would just get a hold of them and convict them and that they would uh, that you would just not let go until they place their faith in Jesus Christ as the only one that can give them eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.